I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy as we continue our series in Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. And we're looking this evening at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read from verse 8 until the end of the chapter, verse 15. And as we come to God's word, let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to this passage that is well known for being divisive and controversial, I pray that instead it would be uh, unifying and peace-giving. Please clarify our mind and help us, Lord, to understand the truth of this passage in the context of the wider truth of your love for us all, men and women, um, old and young, and uh, the church as the family of God. Your family, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help me to speak only what you want me to say, only what is your truth from your word. And I pray, Lord, that all our hearts would be um, open to receive from you and our minds able to clearly grasp what it is that you are saying here uh, this evening from the Bible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So, uh, as I say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look this evening from verse 8 to verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's a nice, easy passage. (laughs) It did strike me as somewhat ironic that I'm teaching on this on the week that, of course, the, the, the Queen of England has died. And, uh, you know, the Queen not only was the, um, obviously, the, in a sense, the ultimate authority figure over uh, the, um, uh, the, the English church, the British church, um, but also, it may not be known to you, but the, the, the double irony that the Queen of England actually was the, the head of the Church of England. And uh, so it struck me as a little bit ironic that I'm <laughs> uh, teaching this passage of all weeks when everyone's thinking about the Queen, the Queen of England, and her, um, in many ways, admirable um, rule. 
Anyway, as I say, not an easy passage. So here's the game plan. Uh, Tonight, uh, every sermon has or should have a mixture of educational elements and exhortation elements, of course. We need to learn things and then we need to be exhorted to live our lives in accord with them. Um, And every sermon has a balance of those things. Uh, But because there's quite a lot here to unpick and unravel and think through clearly, uh, the balance of tonight will be more educational than exhortation. I mean, there'll be a little bit of exhortation, but I'm not going to spend a long time um, exhorting us to do this because you can't do everything in half an hour. And there's a lot of uh, thinking we need to do. So just to, you know, first of all, in terms of the game plan, uh, it'll be more educational than exhortation tonight. And if you haven't heard me preach before or you're new to the church, it doesn't mean that every time I preach it's going to be mainly educational. It's just this, this needs to be where the emphasis is tonight. Um, and then uh, as we go through, there are basically going to be three movements to the sermon. So as you think through in your minds where we're going, there are basically going to be three movements. Uh, the first movement is going to be reminding ourselves of the overall uh, message and the overall context of the book. Now, that's always very important when you look at a particular passage. We just read out a few verses. This is a letter. has a message. You need to understand this in the context uh, of the letter. It's always important, but it's particularly important for, this, um, uh, for these verses. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that. And then we'll spend a bit of time on verse 8, uh, where Paul addresses the men. But we'll spend less time on that, uh, partly because... He spends less time on it. There's only one verse. Um, He spends more time addressing the women. So that's part of the reason why we'll spend less time on the men bit of verse 8. But also because, obviously, it's easier to understand what he's saying in verse 8. So we don't need to spend quite so much time thinking that through. And I'll sort of explain it briefly. And then there will be a little bit of exhortation there to the men among us. Um, But we'll spend most of the time... um, in the third movement, which is from verses 9 to 15, on the women, as, as Paul teaches there. So let me give you um, an overview of, roughly speaking, what I'll be saying, and then I'll explain how I get there. So, um, roughly speaking, I think what Paul is saying here is that the role of women and men in uh, church is a critically important part of maintaining the doctrinal health of a church. So I'll say that again. The role of women and men in church is a critically important part. It's not the whole thing, but it is important. It's a critically critically important part of maintaining the health, uh, the doctrinal health particularly, specifically, in in a church. So let me uh, then uh, show you how I get there. So remember the three movements. The first movement is uh, the overview, the context. So uh, this is obviously Paul's letter to Timothy. It's his first letter to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. Uh, It's a church uh, that uh, Paul knew well, and he had predicted in his farewell to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts that false teachers would rise up even among them, In uh, probably therefore not just among the church, but among the elders that could be among the church. But false teachers would rise up, And indeed that had happened. So now he's writing to Timothy and he's um, telling Timothy, basically, uh, that certain things he needs to do to make sure that the church at Ephesus is fit or healthy uh, for gospel proclamation. 
Uh, the key verse of First Timothy, I think, is uh, chapter 3, uh, verse uh, um, uh, 15, where he says, uh, this is how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this is all, the whole thing is about, and this is why we call this sermon series the, 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 um, uh, the, the, related to the church of the truth and, um, and the church of the gospel, um, the, the truth being the gospel. Because uh, Paul is trying to get the church fit to be a place that is healthy for the gospel. And you want to have that verse clear in your mind as we um, keep on going through it in the overall context. And with that overall theme in mind, he has three pillars. Um, that's my word for it, just to help us remember it. But he talks about, obviously, the, uh, the church being a pillar and buttress of the truth. So it, it's drawn from that text. But there are three pillars or three key principles he has in the letter, each of which is introduced by his phrase, a trustworthy saying. And so there are three key ways to maintain uh, the gospel health of the church. Uh, one is doctrinal. Um, the second is leadership, and that begins in chapter three. We obviously haven't got there yet. And then the third is related to morality and, and um, godliness, in particular, uh, looking after the poor, and that's later in the um, in the letter. Um, and that's all important because uh, the, where we are in our section we're looking at tonight is in this bit, this pillar, this, this emphasis about doctrine. And you can see that um, pillar truth, if you like, in verse 15 of chapter 1 where he says, uh, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So that's obviously a doctrinal statement about the gospel. And as you may remember earlier, uh, in, that le- in that chapter, he talked about true and false teaching. And so this part, this chapter 2, this, the second pillar you see is in chapter 3. Uh, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer. He desires a noble task. And he's sort of transitioning to leadership. But here this is still mainly, at least, in the doctrinal part, which is why I say his main theme is that the role of men and women in church is a critically important component of maintaining doctrinal health in a church because it's within that principle of doctrinal health being a part of maintaining the, the health of the church, the spiritual health of the church. So that's the first uh, movement, uh, the overview, overview in the context. Second movement um, about the men, and this is verse 8. So let me read it out for us again so it's fresh in our minds. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, so Paul obviously uh, wants uh, the men to pray everywhere, in every place. Um, as we saw last week from uh, Pastor Ben's uh, preaching, there's this emphasis on all so there's this, like, all the place, all the time. Um, and he's saying to the men, he really wants them to be praying, lifting holy hands. Uh, just as a side note, uh, the, the Bible does talk about body, um, the body in worship, kneeling. Um, 
and lifting holy hands. So it's not mandatory that you lift your holy hands, but if you ever do see someone lifting holy hands, it's interesting, it's in prayer rather than song though, isn't it? I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but anyway, they are to lift holy hands uh, in prayer. That was clearly the custom. Without anger or quarreling. So what Paul's saying is there is a tendency for men and of course we all know this, and it's not that every man is liable to have a fight at any moment, but uh, men are more likely to get into a quarrel and be combative. And he wants to make sure, therefore, that men, rather than quarreling um, or sulking, I mean, some men quarrel by arguing, other men quarrel by sulking and leaving, but they're still quarreling, um, Rather than quarreling and being angry, uh, they pray. That's, uh, it's pretty obvious what it's saying. I'm not going to spend a long time explaining it because I think it's quite clear. But I will spend a moment exhorting men to pray and not quarrel. And I'm going to do it by means of a story my father told me some years ago. Uh, my father, who's now in his mid-80s, um, when he retired, he spent a lot of time volunteering for the British Bible Society. He loves the Bible Society. And he went around all sorts of villages trying to um, fundraise for them and encourage people to give to the Bible Society and all that. And he got to know uh, more about them. And he told me a rather amusing story of the founders of uh, the, uh, or at least some of the, the, the sort of patriarchs of the Bible Society a long time ago in, in England, who were once overheard arguing to, uh, together. So there's the uh, two men uh, in the Bible Society um, and they're having a real argument about something or other, some strategic development that, that one of them wants to do. And they were brothers, apparently, I mean, literal brothers. Um, and they're arguing about it. And uh, it's getting more heated and the other staff are overhearing you know, these two key leaders having a real argument. And um, one of the brothers finally says, well, to the other one, so will you at least pray about it? And the other brother says, no, I will not pray about it. I've made up my mind. <laughs> uh, it's so easy to be like that, isn't it? I mean, of course, you can manipulate people saying in, in, in pious language too. But, and, of course, Paul's saying the reverse. Let's not have a quarrel. Let's not have a committee meeting that ends in uh, a fight. Let's pray. Anyway, so it's pretty obvious what he's saying, and I've just exhorted us to that end briefly. Well, now we come to the difficult part, uh, verses 9 to 15. Uh, First, uh, verse 9, which of this section is probably the least difficult. (laughs) It's still fairly hard. Um, I think what Paul is saying here is, uh, verses 9 and 10, is... In essence, instead of spending all your time trying to look good, um, make sure the balance of your time, women. Now, of course, there are some men who, um, I'm thinking of um, some people I knew at boarding school who, when they were 15, seemed to spend ages getting their hair just right, and they were men. So certainly men can be a bit like this too, but uh, he is talking to the women. And he's saying, look, instead of giving too much attention to the way you look, um, give more attention 
to how you are. Um, uh, not to looking good, but being good. Uh, and the, I think the coverall phrase is respectable apparel, uh, which just means reasonable clothes. There's no reason why as a Christian woman you need to look awful or something like that. I don't think Paul's saying that. He's just saying it, it is possible, isn't it, to, to get too concerned with how we look. Um, and as we advance in godliness, um, we should become more uh, secure in our physical appearance and um, it, it sometimes struck me as slightly ironic that the, the liberals on these texts who of course take a liberal interpretation of this text tend to be those I, I've you know because I was at Cambridge and Yale I've been to lots of liberal churches and that kind of thing but in those circles it te- there tends to be a lack of emphasis on well how can I say this without being offensive gosh what a, difficult, what a difficult passage. But it, the emphasis tends to be upon character and education in those kind of circles. And then in some very, very conservative circles, um, perhaps in other parts of the country, you sometimes think, though they take a conservative interpretation of the second half of this passage, there's certainly a lot of focus on looking good, uh, which just strikes me as ironic. Um, if we're going to be conservative in one area, we should probably be conservative in both. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with uh, looking nice and trying to look nice, of course. Um, but the focus should primarily be on character. That's, I think, in essence what he's saying. Well, now we come to uh, the controversial bit, verse 11. Let me read it out for us again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submiss- submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Um, rather she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first uh, then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor yet she will be saved through childbearing and uh, he continues so this part is uh, broken down into two subsections basically Uh, first is what Paul is saying and then uh, why uh, why he is uh, saying it. And in terms of what he is saying, there are two elements. Uh, the first thing he says is that women are to learn. Now, I think that verse 11 is often... Um, uh, he's not saying that women aren't to ever say anything. It cannot be what he's saying. And I'll mention Priscilla and Aquila in a moment who taught the word of God more accurately to Apollos. He cannot be saying that women are never to say anything. Um, What what he's emphasizing is one of the great Christian virtues that was a distinctive of the church, which is that women were to be disciples. And you have to imaginatively put yourself back into first century culture and Middle East and Judaism. And it was an astonishing thing that women's education and to women to be disciples and for women to learn was really quite revolutionary. And I think perhaps the only way to put ourselves there imaginatively is if you know what's going on in Afghanistan right now, um, women find it very hard to go to school. 
Christians have always said um, that because uh, men and women are both uh, equal in God's eyes, both equally made in the image of God, that a woman is to learn. And so I think that's essentially what verse 11 is about. Then verse 12, this is the second part of what he is saying, and then we'll get to why he says it. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. I think quiet there, receiving the teaching. Uh, In essence, what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that church-sanctioned teaching with authority over men is not permitted for a woman. So uh, all of those elements are quite important to get straight in our minds. Church-sanctioned teaching um, with authority over a man is not permitted uh, for a woman. So he's not talking about any kind of teaching in any kind of situation. This is why the overview was quite important to get right at the beginning. You remember um, chapter 3, verse 15. These are instructions about how someone is to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He's not talking about government. Um, Not only did we have a queen until quite recently, but we also had probably one of our most successful prime ministers is Margaret Thatcher. And in in England, the next prime minister is Liz Truss, who I don't know anything about. She's only just begun. But they're both all obviously women. As far as I can see, the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about that whatsoever. Uh, This is talking about the church, and it's also, I think, and I, I know there are Bible teachers who I respect who probably disagree with me on this, but to me it seems bananas to think otherwise, if that's a theological term, bananas. But uh, I don't think it's talking about like universities and schools. and it just uh, you know, Paul doesn't say, I'm telling you how women should behave in every area of life across the whole of society. He doesn't say that, does not. He's talking about the church. It's very specific. So what is not permitted is church-sanctioned teaching with authority. So you remember it says here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Both those elements, teaching and authority, are important. It isn't all um, kinds of um, conversation and teaching in church life. Uh, It's church-sanctioned teaching with authority. Um, So I mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. They were the husband and wife team. You can read about them in the book of Acts. And we're told there in the book of Acts that they taught Apollos, who was a great preacher, the word of God more accurately. So they taught him. And we don't get any sense that uh, Apollos was wrong to have learned from them. I've learned lots of things in church life from women. Uh, I think it would be, I I, I just think it would be strange for me to not be willing to learn from a woman. Um, I I think I've told this story um, before here, but I'm not, maybe I haven't, but I was going through quite a tough time in my mid-twenties for various reasons that, are not 
secret, but I, I, I'm not going to talk about in the, from the pulpit. There's nothing, nothing sort of immoral or something, but it was a tough time. And I really wanted to find a mentor. And I was probably 25 or so, and at that stage of my life was viewed as a sort of up-and-coming evangelical leader. And there were lots of, like, you know, 45-year-old men who wanted to sort of get hold of me and put me in their tribe, if you know what I mean. And I just had sort of had enough of it. I didn't really want anything to... I didn't want some senior leader to try and co-opt me to their theological agenda anymore. I'd had enough, you know. And so I was praying that God would give me a mentor who wasn't famous and wasn't hungry for power, but could just mentor me. That'd be nice, you know. And um, there was this woman uh, at the church. She was working at the church at the time on staff. And probably then, she was probably in her 60s, I guess. She's still alive. Um, And I remember sharing this with her. Her name's Pat. And um, I remember she, uh, she looked at me. She, she's got very blue eyes, Pat has, very blue eyes. Godly woman. And she looked at me and said, well, Josh, do you think it could be a woman? And it just never occurred to me that I could learn, I could be mentored in ministry by a woman. And I was. I'm not saying I, you know, <laughs> I had other male mentors too, you know, but I mean, I learned a lot from Pat. Uh, she was the church administrator, and wow, uh, she <laughs> she knew stuff that a lot of the men pastors didn't um, about how churches worked. Um, for instance, I remember I was discipling some uh, young guy in the church who was dating a non-Christian, and um, and his parents were very worried about this. And I spent a lot of time with him, and I didn't tell him to stop dating her, but in the end, he did. Um, it, was, it was one of the, one of the most amusing stories of my um, discipleship life, I think, because he stopped dating her out of conviction. That was the right thing. Then she got converted. And then instead of dating her again and marrying her, he dated someone else and married someone else. I was like, okay. So that's but uh, it seemed, anyway, but Pat's, you know, the, he, this, this guy, uh, this young man at the time was the son of a deacon in the church. And this deacon in the church was quite an authoritative man. And I found that for whatever reason, he was suddenly being very kind to me. And I said to Pat, I don't know why this guy's suddenly being so nice and kind. He said, Josh, you're discipling his son. I was like, oh. Okay, so it sort of connected a lot of relational family dots to me. That sort of, those sort of things I learned. So I, I, I don't think Paul's saying that there's no teaching, no, you can't learn from women. What he's talking about is church-sanctioned teaching with authority over a man. So, and you know, the Elder Council at College Church has policy on the roles of men and women and teaching in the church and all that sort of thing. And this is just reflective of that. Um, but essentially, say, so what does that mean? What, in contemporary church life, uh, that means uh, the pulpit. Um, this is um, this pulpit, I mean, this lectern, and on Sunday morning, 
when we gather and worship, there are men and women here. This is obviously teaching with authority. It doesn't mean that you're being authoritative and aggressive, but the, the point of this gathering is we're gathering around God's word and we're seeking to hear from God. And what Paul is saying is um, church-sanctioned teaching with authority is not permitted for a woman over a man. Now, um, I think that's very clearly what he's saying. I've never really um, doubted it. Uh, he, um, and I'm not going to get in tonight to the connection to the role of elder, um, but the connection that's usually made, which I think is absolutely right, is in 1 Timothy 3.2 when it's describing the role of an overseer and in the, in the New Testament, overseer, elder, and shepherd are terms that are used interchangeably for what we call elder or pastor. Overseer, of course, is the Greek word bishop. So there are all these different words for that leader. But the, the overseer or the elder uh, must be able to teach. And he do, what he means then, of course, is this kind of church-sanctioned teaching with authority. And uh, so um, the role of elder at college church is only for qualified men uh, for that same reason. Um, now, that's a very difficult line to take these days. Um, the conversation about gender in the world is so, so far removed from this. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, I think, to be fair, are there other possible interpretations? Well, there are, and there are all sorts of different nuances. But basically, they um, cluster around two. So the, the first other possible interpretation is what I would call the, the liberal interpretation. Now, I don't mean liberal politically, I mean liberal theologically. Uh, it's a long tradition of liberal Christianity. Um, the liberal interpretation of Scripture, uh, of this passage, and I know this because I've, again, I've been educated, you know, at Cambridge and Yale, I know liberals. Um, the liberal interpretation of this, this passage is absolute agreement that what I've said is the correct interpretation of what Paul says. I've never come across a liberal who would disagree with me saying that's what the passage says. They just think Paul was wrong. Um, and that itself, I think, is pretty fascinating. Now, there is the other option is a there are some evangelicals who take a different view on this, and I'll explain that in a moment. But to me, it's not quite a slam dunk for the fact that the church-sanctioned teaching of authority over, over a man not being permitted as a woman is the right interpretation. It's not quite a slam dunk that liberals agree that that's right but just think Paul's wrong. I, I, it, but it is pretty close. Because I think if we don't have a, a dog in the fight, in other words, they don't. They're just going to say, because the liberal view is uh, these are old-fashioned and we, we've learned more, we've progressed, and we don't need to hold on to old-fashioned morality anymore. Um, but if you look at it without a dog in the fight, it's pretty, it, most people say it's pretty obvious what Paul was saying. I mean, he, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. I mean, that's what he says. So, um, uh, uh, anyway, that's the liberal view. Um, 
I remember when I was, um, I candidated once to be a pastor of a, a liberal church. And you say, whoa, um, but uh, th- there's a long story behind that. But there, was a, there were a couple of evangelicals who were on their search committee. He wanted the church to hire an evangelical pastor. And um, they were trying to get me in. And so I went along for some interviews. And um, it fascinated me. Uh, and I was just very upfront what I believed about everything uh, with them, as I always try to be. And knew them afterwards and were very friendly with them. But it fascinated me that when this issue came up and they wanted to know what I thought, I then, of course, went, well, let me tell you what I think. I'll go to First Timothy 2, and I explained it just like I am tonight. And I could tell by looking around the search committee that they were rather bemused. Why is he telling us what the Bible says about it? They were like, well, that's fine, but what do you think? Well, they knew that's what it said, but they wanted to know what I thought. And I said, well, I think what this says. And they said, oh, okay. Um, the, the, other, uh, the other view, of, of course, is there are um, some evangelicals, and it depends which circles you move in, how, uh, how many you think there are like that. But there are certainly are some evangelicals, some evangelical scholars. Um, one evangelical scholar, in, I won't mention his, his name, but there's one evangelical scholar I respect. He's written a lot of good stuff and other things. Um, would take what is usually called an egalitarian view on this a text. I don't like those kind of labels. I mean, usually these things are put into two camps, egalitarian and complementarian. But the trouble with those labels is that there's all sorts of different other stuff that gets shoved into them. And I'll get to that at the end when I have a couple, address a couple of potential misunderstandings. But anyway, just for clarity's sake, normally, normally called an egalitarian approach, evangelicals. And basically, and again, it's complicated and lots of books written on it, but basically what that approach says is, oh, you have to understand. Though it looks like it's clear what Paul's saying, actually, in Ephesus, there's a historical background. And what Paul is saying is, that, that they need, they've overreacted one way and that there is dominant women and they shouldn't be dominating. He's not saying that church-sanctioned teaching with authority is not permitted for a woman. He's just saying don't, don't, women don't push around your men. And that's really the historical context. And I, you know, I, I've read all that stuff and I just find it deeply frustrating because the truth is, and I'm, my, my background is, historical i understand it i wasn't a classicist um but i i understand how history works the truth is at this period in time what we know about what was going on in ephesus is almost nothing so little and uh, the trouble is a lot of theologians um more recent theologians and i by say more recent i mean the last 60 years um, have not been classically trained or his, trained in how to do history. They, their Greek is brilliant. They've read a lot of commentaries, but they don't know how history works. And so what happens is they read a historical background about Ephesus, and they think those, those are the facts. But that's not how history works. There is only a certain number of actual pieces of data we have about Ephesus. Not much. And then if you're writing history... 
you put those bits of data together into a narrative and you write a book about it. And then someone else writes another book with another story about it. And someone else, that's why there are always different, constantly new history books, though of course the past doesn't change very much, right? Because the, the historian's task is to tell the story and put the things together to help it make sense to you, and that's fine. Um, but um, the actual facts we have uh, about uh, what was going on in Ephesus is very small. And probably the, 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 the best historical data we have of what was going on in Ephesus is right here in front of us in First Timothy. So I don't buy it at all, and I think it's, I think it's intellectually uh, not persuasive. Um, so, uh, but then, so that's what Paul was saying: uh, church-sanctioned teaching with authority over man is not uh, not permitted uh, for a woman. But then, then why? Well, that's verses thirteen to fifteen. Four. So this is why: for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Um, and I'll get to that bit in a moment. Um, so why? Paul gives um, two, and then there's another reason, which is kind of a why, but it is also like more pastoral too. So the two primary why reasons. Uh, the first is creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So that's obviously talking about a creation why and the second is the fall so if you know your bibles you've got genesis 1 and 2 which is creation genesis 3 which is the fall and verse 14 of course uh, end of uh, 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 genesis 3 which is the fall and verse 14 of course is about the uh, uh, genesis about the fall adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived who came a transgression well there you have it actually you don't need to be all sophisticated about historical background, Paul actually tells us it's not a cultural matter. Why am I saying this? Because of creation and because of the fall. It's got nothing to do with what was going on in Ephesus, in other words. It's to do with what happened when Adam was made, then Eve, creation, and what happened when Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. That's why. Not culture, not historical background in Ephesus, creation and fall. He tells us. And so, um, now the fall part is quite tricky. Uh, what does he mean? Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became... Uh, I mean, the creation bit, of course, is a... Uh, it's pretty clear. But the, the full bit, what does, Ad, what does it mean Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor? I've heard evangelicals preach on this, saying that what this means is that women, uh, essentially what they say is that it means that women are naturally more gullible than men. And I, I just, I, I, you know, I know some pretty gullible men. And <laughs> I, I've never been able to, you know, get my mind around that interpretation. But then if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? And I think what Paul's saying, and this is my best thinking um, at the moment. I've been thinking through it again this week, obviously. I think what Paul's saying is, you remember the story 
Uh, and of course, Paul, as a f- former Pharisee, knew his Bible very well. And so it would all been fresh in his mind. Um, you, you remember the story. Uh, Eve um, is asked by the serpent, what did God say? And she says, uh, don't, um, you're not allowed to eat uh, from the tree or, or touch it or you will die. And of course, she's wrong. God didn't say don't touch it. He just said don't eat from it. Uh, but you also remember um, that uh, God told Adam that. He didn't tell Eve And so I think what Paul's saying is it was Adam's job as the head of the household to teach his wife and shepherd her, and he did not. And so what's going on in the church is that rightful loving, and we're not talking about the sacrificial kind of leadership the men to have, but we can't are to have, we can't really mention headship without saying that, that rightful, sacrificial, loving, shepherding, guiding role that Adam was meant to have and failed at, now in Christ, we men who are married and we men who are elders or pastors, that's of course what he's talking about, are to bring back out again. I think that's what he's saying. Um, And once you see that, it becomes, I think, quite beautiful. So it's got nothing to do with uh, women are obviously not cognitively less bright than men. I mean, I, again, you, that sort of thing is just, I mean, it's just not true biologically. Um, uh, being Nobel Prize winners who are w- women and all, all that sort of thing. Um, um, well, the last bit is also quite tricky, isn't it? Yet she will be saved through childbearing. What on earth does that mean? If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, my view on this is, um, I actually came across another Bible teacher who agreed with me on it, which I was rather surprised and pleased. Um, I didn't know he agreed. I thought he wouldn't, but he did. Uh, but my, my view on this is that um, Paul's talking about the birth of the child. Now, some people say, oh, that's sort of pious nonsense, but... It, I, I really don't think it is. Again, you've got to you've got to get your mind into Paul's a Pharisee, highly sophisticated understanding of Scripture, and it, when he writes, he sort of appeals to these archetypal truths, assuming that we can all connect the dots. And that's why when you often you preach through Paul or study Paul, you've got to do it often in smaller segments because, I mean, you can do it in bigger segments too, but you just miss stuff. There's so much in a lot of what he says, and here, I think he's essentially, um, in a very brief way, telling a huge story. So let me just, I won't tell the whole, all that huge story, but let me put it back a little bit. So you remember that when uh, God spoke to Eve, uh, he said that she would be the mother of all the living. And then you remember that when Eve uh, gave birth to Cain, uh, she had this wonderful moment of, ah, oh, I've given birth. Now, I think, and we don't have time, I don't have time to prove this to you, but I think um, that what's going on there is that Eve, and it's, it's a sad and beautiful thing, I think Eve is actually thinking that he, the one who is to give life, you remember that uh, God had also say, said um, that um, 
there'll come the serpent crusher in the, the foreshadowing of the gospel who will be the savior, the one who will crush serpent, overcome the works of the devil. And Eve is going to be mother living. So what he's saying is that's going to come through your line, Eve. He, the serpent crusher, will come through Eve. You'll be the mother of life. You know, because it, when you eat of the, the tree of knowledge and good and evil, in dying you will die. In that moment you'll enter the realm of death. But Eve, through you, will come life. You're, there'll be at this other realm. And he will be the one who will give that life. The serpent crusher will, will be the savior, the redeemer. The, uh, and I think at that moment when Cain's born, she's saying to herself, Ah, he's come. And of course, sadly, he's the murderer, isn't he? And, you, she, and we, she's got to wait a long time. We've all got to wait a long time until he is finally born of Mary. And that is what I think Paul's talking about by childbearing. He's talking about that whole story of how woman, and every time there's, I think this is, I think we feel, even if you're a non-Christian, you may sense this. Every time there's a child that's born, even today, there's an echo of that hope. Ah, life, hope. Um, Of course, he has come now, the the child Jesus. He uh, grew up to live and then die that we might live. So... uh, some people say that the word saved means sanctified here and somehow she's sanctified through motherhood or something like that. I don't think it's talking about that at all. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I've got four children and I've watched Rochelle be a mother and uh, she's, she's a lot more holy than I am and I'm sure it sanctifies you. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about the, you know, because he says so much about, you know, men should, women should, but here he's saying, no, actually, as a woman, Eve, Mary, you have this specific uh, role in the, the birth of the child. And of course, then we're saved, all of us. That's why I think he switches to the plural, if they, all of us, if we uh, put our trust in Jesus, that's faith. And then uh, we continue to follow him in discipleship, love and holiness. Well, note that final last word, self-control. It's actually, if you were to teach this passage very quickly and skip over all the difficult bits, um, which is a technique I would commend to you, um, the, you would notice that um, the end of verse, or middle of verse 9, it says self-control. And then at the end of verse 15, it says self-control again. So he's really commending all these different disorders that we have and the temptations we feel to... Ever since the fall, there's been a war around gender and sexuality. And the church, though, is to be a place of self-control. It's partly how we get healthy. Um, it's the, the role of men and women in church is one way that gospel health is guarded in a church. And that's all the sort of things that Paul's saying here. Well, I said that I conclude with addressing a couple of uh, possible misunderstandings. I think they're very important. I know our time is almost up, but I, I, I cannot leave without doing them because I think there are 
couple of very common misunderstandings that need to be addressed. So let me clarify two things. First clarification, we've obviously been looking at this passage here, but the biblical teaching on the role of men and women in church, and remember it's church, church sanctioned teaching with authority over, over man, um, uh, the biblical teaching uh, of men and women in church needs to cut both ways. I've often said this. I was at, uh, I um, uh, taught this, you know, you think it's difficult to teach, stand up for this kind of thing in Wheaton. Imagine what it's like doing that at Yale. But we took this line and we never had any difficulties on it. We had difficulties about other things, but never on this. And the reason why, as we said right from the beginning, it's got to cut both ways. So if we're going to hold the biblical line about women, we need to call men, and that's why I did do a little bit of teaching about verse 8, though there's much more could be said. We need to hold men to account and self-control too. So I think the Bible is clearly against patriarchy or patriarchalism. Uh, again, that's a loaded word, isn't it? But um, let me just give you one example. And I had to really bite my tongue. And I think I was wise to do it, but I really wanted to come up in the pulpit and like teach against this. And I decided not to. But one very prominent um, Bible teacher who would, and is complementarian, again, that word is so got so many things in it that can be so unloving and ungracious so I, I don't like these labels um, but anyway he's in that kind of group uh, came out and said some rude things about a woman uh, a prominent woman in ministry and I, my jaw almost hit the floor I, what I mean what on earth has that got to do with who Jesus is and how he treated women. And anyway, I mean, from, shouldn't a Christian leader at least be a gentleman? How can you speak nastily about a woman and pretend you're defending complementarity? You're not def- you're, you're just being You're just being rude. Stop it. And I really wanted to lay into him, and I didn't. It's probably a good thing. Um, and I'm, of course, not going to mention who I'm thinking of. But, um, but it is important that it cuts both ways. That's why I mentioned um, Pat, who I learned so much from. Um, and we have women in ministry here. We should, you sh- we should have women in, on, in ministry. Not, not pastors, but in ministry. Because the Bible talks about church-sanctioned teaching with authority over men. Shouldn't have a woman preach on Sunday morning. Well, there's lots of things we can learn from women all the time, of course. Um, so that's the first um, clarification I think is important. But having said that, and I see some young men here this evening, which is great. Um, I think it's also important because all the, the discourse on this for years in the church has been as a reflection and a conversation with the, the feminist movement, of course, from the 1960s. But, and, I, and, of course, I, you know, I have I'm married, I have a wife, I have two daughters. I believe in um, women being treated well. Um, 
but the, 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 the fact of the matter is that if any, that men, particularly young men, are in, are in deep trouble today. Um, suicide rates far more among men. Percentage of men going to university far less than women. Any university you go to across the country be far more women than men. So we must be a church where men can be men. Otherwise we'll lose them. So the, the, you know, there are two clarifications kind of either way. And I do have a warning. If it is true that the role of men and women in church is a critically important component of maintaining doctrinal health in a church, and if it is true that church-sanctioned teaching with authority over men is not permitted for a woman, uh, now we're not going to slip in this area, certainly not why I'm here. I've, I've held that line in more difficult situations than in Wheaton, and I'm, I'm not changing my mind uh, on this. So we're not going to slip on this. But if uh, evangelical institutions become unfriendly uh, to uh, the Bible's teaching here, I think it is at least very risky and probably um, predictive of decline. That must be the logic, mustn't it? The role of men and women in church is a critically important component of maintaining doctrine and health in a church. And if we're against that, then how healthy will we remain? I'm not saying that there aren't well-meaning evangelicals who disagree with me. I'm sure there are. They're my friends. Uh, but I think it is, it's not a primary issue, of course. Not even close. You're not saved by your view on role of men and women in church. Of course, it's a secondary issue, and we have a variety of opinion, I'm sure, even here tonight. I'm just sharing my view. But um, it is connected to a primary issue. Because you remember what I said, that the basic two broad other categories that people have. There's the liberal view, which says, yeah, this is what it says. I just disagree with it. Um, that obviously has led to all sorts of problems for the church because it's undermined the authority of Scripture. But the other view, which is evangelical, has, has a hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means how you interpret scripture. A hermeneutic that, in essence, um, I think in all likelihood, will, if it has not already undermined um, the authority of scripture. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that is a warning. Uh, let me conclude with something a bit more encouraging. <laughs> um, I, one time I was very I had a very a very nice job offer for a, for a ministry position and a group of people really asked me to compromise on this issue so I could get the job and Rochelle and I just sort of looked at each other and said well we can't we're not going to do that you have to be honest what we believe um, and of course I didn't get the job but then God in his faithfulness opened another door. And the Lord worked in great power at that time. And I think it's often the case. If we, in, with grace and in love, hold on to what the Bible says, it may close some doors. 
Um, but uh, the Lord will open some other doors and there'll be places of great fruit, I believe. Certainly I've experienced that. For it is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Let me pray for us. I've gone a little bit too long. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Well, thank you for this passage. And we, uh, we thank you that we're united in Christ rather around our view on these uh, other matters. But we know as a church we have to think them through together. So I pray, Lord, that anything I've said that is uh, helpful will remain and anything I've said that isn't, you'll uh, remove from our minds. And we ask that you'd help us in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.